Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome history friends and welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails a series on the 30 Years War. I'm Zach Twomley and it's been a while since we last spoke. Basically f- between moving house and finally getting settled in, my body decided it was finally time to get COVID and see what the fuss was all about. And then I was a bit miserable for a while, and now I'm finally better, but still a bit of COVID brain left over, so if you notice some weird terms or anything, maybe my speech sounds a bit odd, then that'd be why. Thank you very much for your well wishes and everything when I let you guys know on Twitter and Facebook and everything else. It's been really appreciated. Sometimes you just need to let yourself rest and wait to get over it, tried to go for a run the other day and my legs are still sore so maybe these things will just take longer than I want them to and patience has never really been my strong suit but I'll do my best. Two quick things before we get started. The first thing you should know is that on Saturday the 25th of June I will be taking part in the Intelligent Speech Conference. It's all online and there's going to be some really good podcasters and historians and other public figures there. So I'll put a link in the description for you to get tickets and you can join many, many others who signed up at the last minute. The second thing you should know is that Matchlock and the Embassy now officially has a sequel, Matchlock and the Rebel. And Matchlock and the Rebel is out now. So I'll put the link in the description where you can get that on your favourite places, whether it's on Amazon or Apple or Barnes & Noble or wherever else. The Google link is on the way, so a little bit of patience if you do prefer to read your books through Google. I understand it will be available in good time. The feedback from my advanced readers for Matchlock and the Rebel has been really positive and I'm really excited to see what you guys think of it. So yeah, it's very exciting to finally be making progress and seeing two books in the series rather than just one for the last few months. It's all a process and it's something I'll just have to put up with when I'm also trying to do a PhD at the same time. Speaking of which, I really should get back to that. But before I do, let's bang out this episode, episode 59, where we're basically picking up from where we left off last time, if you can remember, all those weeks ago. It wasn't even that long. It was only like a month ago, but it feels way longer than that. It feels like I left you guys in the lurch for so long. But in any case, we basically covered the year 1633, the kind of year where everyone just stared angrily at each other and didn't really do anything because Gustavus Adolphus had been killed in battle. 
and the Swedes were kind of rudderless and the Imperials were still recovering. So we saw that while the year didn't contain much in the way of pivotal triumphs on either side, there was a great deal of manoeuvring taking place. Wallenstein managed to clear the enemy out of Silesia and he moved to the border with Saxony and Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar captured Regensburg before rampaging through Bavaria once again. All the while, the act of negotiating while fighting was plain to see and established as a tactic on both sides to be revisited later in the 1640s when everyone had learned their lessons. So, who did the majority of the talking? Well, on the one hand, Wallenstein negotiated through intermediaries on the Saxon side during several arranged ceasefires to lay down some kind of plan for the future security of Germany and the Empire. Honourable and reasonable though his intentions were, Wallenstein was destined to become one among many victims of slander during this portion of the war, as we watch his story come to its gruesome end. On the other hand, the Spanish were becoming increasingly involved in the conflict in Germany, not because they owed it to Emperor Ferdinand per se, but because Madrid believed that by defeating Sweden, the empire would be free to turn its full attention towards the bothersome Dutch who had left the Spanish reeling since 1629. The different pieces were moving across the board, and among the Spanish and Imperial players, Oxenstierna in Stockholm and Richelieu in Paris were more than willing to partake in this game of 3D chess. 1634, at least, looked to be a year of new opportunities for all involved. And while it was certainly a dramatic year, it was also destined to confirm the bad news, that far from ending any time soon, the conflict was set to expand massively. Let's investigate the situation then, as I take you all to early 1634. The Duke of Friedland asserted that all troops of foreign potentates, whether Spanish, French, Swedish or from Lorraine, and all foreigners who did not belong in the empire, must be expelled in order to restore it to its state during the time of the emperors Rudolf and Matthias. When I asked to know and write down the specific terms of the peace, he would not agree, instead insisting that both armies should march immediately into the empire, directly against the Swedes, who at that time were the nearest, to remove them. In such a manner did Duke Franz Albrecht of Saxe-Luneburg describe Wallenstein's offer to him made during a meeting in September 1633. Franz Albrecht as the second-in-command of the Saxon commander, Georg von Arnhem, was in a unique position throughout the summer and early autumn of 1633 to hear Wallenstein's offers. Yet the plan mentioned above was outlined by Franz Albrecht only after news of Wallenstein's assassination was made known. Franz Albrecht, in other words, may have been stretching the truth in an effort to change the narrative surrounding Wallenstein's negotiations. Unfortunately for historians, it seems that Franz Albrecht was far from the only contemporary of Wallenstein's to muddy the truth about what the Imperial Generalissimo had actually said or offered. The result is that historians have been left with a morass of conflicting opinions and reports on Wallenstein's intentions and character. Some claim that Wallenstein still burned with revenge at being dismissed in 1630, and that he harboured ambitions for the Bohemian crown. 
Others assert the general difficulty in getting to the bottom of the riddles so long as so many conflicting reports were present. Others, like Jeff Mortimer in his work Wallenstein, The Enigma of the Thirty Years' War, presented Wallenstein's negotiations and his subsequent behaviour as rational but occasionally weak, motivated less by sinister intentions to defect or betray his emperor than by a genuine desire to bring about peace and eject the foreigner from the empire. Wallenstein had little to gain and everything to lose by abandoning Emperor Ferdinand and placing his trust wholly in the dubious Saxons, who didn't have the best military track record at this point, let's be fair. In October 1633, in the final period of negotiations he had had with Franz Albert, Wallenstein signed a declaration made with that Saxon commander for the first and only time since negotiations with him had begun. The agreement was between the two Protestant electors, Saxony and Brandenburg, and Wallenstein only. The Swedes were excluded. In fact, they seemed to be the target of the arrangement signed by the parties, who, seeing the present comprehensive devastation and decline of the empire, have considered ways and means by which this may be remedied, and the empire and its constituent parts rescued from despoilation by foreign troops and restored to their former prime and well-being. Thus, both electoral armies were to join with the imperialist forces and be placed under Wallenstein's overall command, as the agreement continued. In order to achieve the above objectives and through their combined might to restore the stability of the religious and secular peace, as it was during the imperial reigns of Rudolf and Matthias and under his present imperial majesty before these troubles which have arisen, and to maintain the same against anyone who persists in further disturbing it. But this arrangement with Franz Albrecht was precisely that, an arrangement with Franz Albrecht. It was not canon until the two electors it concerned agreed to sign it. As Wallenstein surely suspected would be the case in the replies to these offers received in mid-November 1633, neither John George of Saxony nor George William of Brandenburg would declare their willingness to sign on the dotted line. The reason, they claimed, was Wallenstein's poor health, which was common knowledge in Vienna as much as in Dresden or Berlin. The two electors didn't want to place their eggs in Wallenstein's basket, only for him to die or retire, leaving them vulnerable, an experience they were shortly sick of after Gustavus's death in battle. Wallenstein's health was deteriorating by late 1633, and his doctors had reportedly given him only two years left to live. However, it's far more likely that neither elector wanted to abandon the Swedes, as the Swedes were still the more powerful faction, and Wallenstein's position was far from certain, considering the mostly uneventful campaigning season of 1633. For both electors as well, the unpalatable implications of the Edict of Restitution meant that siding with Emperor Ferdinand was impossible until the Edict's worst clauses were rescinded, a request blocked repeatedly by the ultra-Catholic Counter-Reformation faction which had long surrounded Emperor Ferdinand in Vienna. Wallenstein had also been vague in his communications with the Saxon commander Georg von Arnhem, while Ferdinand's 34-page memorandum detailing the Habsburg position had been anything but vague. In addition, Wallenstein assumed that by abandoning the Swedes, the two electors would automatically make war on them in league with the Emperor, whereas Georg von Arnhem, if he contemplated abandoning his Swedish ally, did so as a means to a different end, that of creating a neutral third party in the Empire which would stand aloof from the Emperor's 
wars and his foes. Notwithstanding the feasibility of remaining aloof by this stage in the conflict and being able to find a third way and not have to choose God or the devil, as Gustavus might have put it, we're led to conclude that the fundamental reason for the failure of these negotiations between Wallenstein and Arnhem was a failure to understand what the other side wanted. By November 1633, in any case, the negotiations were at an end, as was the period of ceasefire. Wallenstein had little to show for it. In fact, it seemed to have done his reputation a great deal of damage, as the details of the negotiations were subsequently warped to suit the propaganda of each side. Wallenstein's reputation took a further hit when he failed to save Regensburg from Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar that same month in November 1633, and occurred additional damage when he made the decision to quarter his soldiers for the winter in Habsburg lands. Outraged at this decision, Emperor Ferdinand ordered Wallenstein out to attack, writing to his Generalissimo in early December 1633, It is my express wish and demand that Your Excellency should immediately turn the army round and proceed towards Passau and the Duke of Weimar, march against him, follow him and drive him out, and this is my final decision, upon which I am completely firm and immovable. Yet such words were not accompanied by a coherent plan for making war in the height of winter. Ferdinand had made no provision for Wallenstein's army if it was to march away from its headquarters at Pilsen and towards Bernhard's army, a distance, by the way, of several hundred miles. Nor had Ferdinand managed to pay Wallenstein or his men what had been promised since spring 1632. Indeed, Wallenstein was in an even worse financial situation now than he had ever been, and all because of the Emperor's failed promises. His subordinates, who had invested their own funds into the campaign and their soldiers with the expectation that forthcoming loot would return such investments, began to become anxious that Wallenstein would not secure their money and they would be bankrupted. The machinery of Wallenstein's war machine threatened to grind to a halt altogether if his men were not properly paid. At the beginning of the year, the Swedes had revolted for similar reasons, but the campaigning year of 1633 had not been conducive to large profits. There was great strategic, but very little money value, in engaging in negotiations with the enemy, as Wallenstein had done in the summer. Wallenstein had also not refrained from making plain his objections to the Emperor's policies in a wider sense. Informed of the looming arrival of a Spanish army some 24,000 strong, which would be tasked with marching towards the Rhine and dealing a killer blow to the Swedes, Wallenstein objected on the grounds that heavy Spanish intervention in the German war would provoke the French to enter the conflict openly in response. In early January 1634, Wallenstein was informed by an imperial agent that the younger brother of the King of Spain, the so-called Cardinal Infant, also just called Ferdinand, should be given an escort of 6,000 of Wallenstein's cavalry in order to make it to the Spanish Netherlands, where he would serve as governor. Wallenstein was sympathetic, but also realistic. 500 miles lay between his position at Pilsen and Brussels, and the Swedes or their allies were in the ascendant virtually everywhere. For the younger brother of the King of Spain to suffer capture, or worse, at the hands of such enemies, would have been tantamount to disaster, as Wallenstein explained. When news of his refusal to cooperate with this harebrained scheme reached the Emperor, though, it seemed like just another strike against his record and character. 
It was under these circumstances that Wallenstein partook in what later became an infamous scheme, the so-called Pilsen Oath. Over the 11th to 13th of January 1634, as the anxieties of the Imperial Army under his command mounted, Wallenstein searched for a way out of the command himself, and for a way to achieve satisfaction for his men. As he floated between the two goals, one of his subordinates orchestrated a unique incident where a document was drawn up pledging the officers under Wallenstein's command to remain loyal to him until he received what was owed to them. In return, Wallenstein committed not to resign from the command. Much was said about honour and faithfulness, and much alcohol was also drunk, but as the historian Geoffrey Mortimer explained, Stripped of the grand phrases, however, this oath was essentially a symbolic gesture, a warning shot to Vienna rather than an actual threat, and it was neither kept secret nor formally transmitted to the court. As such, it had little practical significance, but it did allow Wallenstein's enemies to resurrect and exploit the old fear, dating back to 1630, that he would not go quietly if dismissed, but would turn the army against the emperor and the court. Hence, more drastic measures would have to be considered in order to get rid of him. In the context of his previous failings and disobedience, not to mention his more suspicious acts like negotiations with the Saxons and perceived gentleness of former Bohemian exiles like Count Thurn, this Pilsen Oath acquired a notoriousness far in excess of reason for the emperor and historians alike. What Wallenstein viewed as a necessary act to keep his men loyal and the army together, while there were scant resources and empty promises from the emperor, the latter was told to see all of this as a smoking gun. By the 22nd of January, contact had been made by Ferdinand's subordinates with a coterie of Irish and Scots officers under Wallenstein's command who would be willing to assassinate him. On the 24th of January, the emperor signed a patent which released Wallenstein's men from their oaths, and on the 18th of February, the final patent was signed this one accusing Wallenstein of conspiracy and essentially serving as the official death warrant, though it was not made public for the moment. Still, those closest to Wallenstein were detached through secret communications until the scales finally fell from the Generalissimo's eyes and he fled to the town of Eger on the 22nd of February for his own safety. Assuming he would be safe from intrigues there, Ferdinand's agents proved relentless, and in the evening of the 24th of February, Wallenstein's closest allies were butchered as they sat down to eat dinner. Noting that Wallenstein was not among the dead, the hired blades searched the castle for him, until one of their number, an Irishman by the name of Walter Devereux, burst through his bedroom door. Having removed his boots, sword, and coat, Wallenstein was utterly defenceless, and reports vary on what happened next. Either way, though, we know Devereux ran Wallenstein through with a broken pike after having broken his sword in earlier exchanges. Wallenstein's corpse was dragged down the stairs into the courtyard after Devereux had had the decency to prevent it being thrown out the window. In a flash of conspiratorial violence then, Wallenstein and his inner circle were dead and his army, just like Gustavus's, had lost its leader. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The story of Wallenstein's fate appears on the surface as a strange distraction from the business of 1634. Yet, it was the culmination of a story which had begun nine years earlier in 1625, when an ambitious, wealthy bohemian nobleman rose to prominence following a series of invaluable promises to his emperor. It must be said that Ferdinand benefited immensely from the service of his generalissimo. With the numerical superiority and loyalty that Wallenstein provided, the Habsburgs were able to overwhelm the Danes and inflict the Edict of Restitution upon the Empire. Then, when crisis loomed for the dynasty, Wallenstein's reputation and tactical ability enabled him to frustrate the tide of the Swedish king at Lutzen. It was a remarkable record, buttressed by the apparent moderation with which Wallenstein greeted his mission, refusing, for example, to impose the edict at sword point, and insisting on offering his criticisms when Ferdinand decided to widen the war into Mantua in 1629, or welcome the Spanish in 1633. Wallenstein's failing health, and arguably his naivety in the final days of his life, certainly counted against him. But it must be said a greater failing was that of Emperor Ferdinand. Had the Emperor simply provisioned him and supported him as he had promised, Wallenstein's men would have been paid, content, and happy to spend their winters somewhere other than the stripped Habsburg lands. Ferdinand's willingness to believe the rumours and lies peddled by ambitious and influential men at court, his decision to dismiss Wallenstein in autumn 1630, just as the Swedes were preparing to launch their campaign, the Emperor's willingness to believe in those rumours once again when the situation became more difficult in 1633, all of these shortcomings on the Emperor's part contributed to Wallenstein's fall. Alongside Gustavus Adolphus and Frederick V of the Palatinate, Wallenstein was an experienced figure from an old period of the war. With his removal, the opportunity now presented itself to replace him with someone new, and Ferdinand did not mourn his generalissimo long. After acquiring the necessary pledges of loyalty from Wallenstein's men, Ferdinand appointed his son as the commander of the army in late April 1634. A new phase of the conflict had been ushered in. The arrival of a Spanish army in Germany in the summer of 1634 was the brainchild of one man above all, Gaspar de Guzman, better known as the Count of Olivares to posterity or simply the Count Duke to his contemporaries. Olivares's career followed a very similar trajectory in Madrid to that of Richelieu in Paris. Both men had had to challenge royals for influence, both men relished and valued their intimate relationship with respective monarchs, and both men were, in their own right, highly accomplished statesmen of the first rank. 
From 1622 to 42, Olivares was at the helm of Spanish government and policy, serving as the closest thing to its prime minister. Geoffrey Parker, an expert in Spanish history, describes the dizzying lengths Olivares went to in order to remain on top of all that Spain's churning bureaucracy had to offer, writing, Olivares rose at five, confessed, roused the king from his slumbers and discussed the day's programme with him. Then he would spend the rest of the day, until eleven at night or later, giving audiences, reading papers, dictating orders. Although he often accompanied the king while hunting or in his carriage, he worked on the way, giving audiences from the saddle or dictating letters to the coachful of secretaries who followed him. With state papers stuffed in his pockets and even in his hat, from his bedchamber to his study, from his study to his coach, out strolling, in the corner, on the stairs, he would hear and deal with an infinite number of people. Busy though he was with the king, Olivares, like Richelieu, also took charge of Spanish foreign policy. And what a foreign policy it was. A great deal had changed in the world since Balthazar de Taniga, his uncle and heir in Spanish government, had died in 1622. In that year, the Habsburg family was unquestionably triumphant, with only the pathetic remnants of Frederick V's allies standing in his way. More importantly to Spain, the Dutch were cowed and under immense pressure following the expiration of the Twelve Years' Truce in 1621. Certainly, Tuniga may have gone to his grave confident he had played no small role in forestalling the decline in Spanish powers, which had been so greatly feared in Madrid and Vienna alike. Spain's golden age, Thuniga had promised, was not going to go quietly, and it would be up to his energetic nephew, Olivares, to further the legend. But in spite of his ox-like constitution and evident ability, there was only so much that Olivares could do. It is true that the ship is going down, a colleague wrote to Olivares in 1629. But under other captains, we should have perished much sooner. The solution to these problems of the Spanish monarchy was to cleave closer together with the Austrian branch of the Habsburg Empire. What this effectively meant was the emperor making war upon the Dutch, a task we will recall Emperor Ferdinand tried to take up during the Regensburg meeting in the summer and autumn of 1630. Yet the requests for the German princes to join the Spanish in an attack on the Dutch fell on deaf ears. German Protestants were angered by the recently passed edict, and Ferdinand's allies were angling to get rid of Wallenstein. In such circumstances, there was no room for a joint Habsburg venture to destroy the Dutch Republic. This was an unfortunate development for Olivares, who had long advised the emperor to make peace with his German vassals for the very reason that it would free them up for a campaign against the Dutch. The pressure was on for Olivares, who was aware of Frederick Henry's stunning successes from 1629, as a massive haul of Spanish silver was seized, and the Dutch used this silver to buy an army of more than a 100,000 men. As the fortresses guarding the Spanish Netherlands toppled, and the very population of that Spanish patrimony threatened revolt, Olivares' requests in the years that followed became still more urgent. Finally, with the transformation of the empire's strategic situation by 1633 under the guise of the Swedes, the emperor's weaknesses provided Olivares with a new opportunity. Not only had these losses made the emperor more desperate and thus more willing to accede to Spanish requests in return for aid for his position, 
but both Emperor Ferdinand and Philip IV, the King of Spain, appreciated that France's increasing activity and involvement in Germany could only mean one thing. Soon, surely, her intervention would be made official. When that happened, it was imperative that both branches of the Habsburg dynasty were on the same page. To put some steel into the Austrian branch, Olivares authorised the Duke of Feria, a former governor of Catalonia, to lead a small professional force over the Alps and into Germany in early 1634, to be followed by the larger army led by the Cardinal Infant in the summer. However, the primary aim of this army under the Cardinal Infant was not to deliver a decisive blow to the Swedes. Instead, the mission was to reinforce the Spanish Netherlands, where the late governess had recently died. This was part of a two-pronged approach by Olivares, who advocated sending Charles and Ferdinand, King Philip IV's two younger brothers, to Spain's European trouble spots. Charles would go to Lisbon to shore up the Portuguese regime, and Ferdinand would go to Brussels. If the news that the two members of the royal family are being sent out does not inspire the nation to do its duty proclaimed Olivares at the time, we may despair of ever being able to stiffen our sinews as we ought if we are to beat the enemy and to restore Spain's reputation. Still, though Brussels had been the Cardinal Infant's original mission, he took heart from the experiences of the Duke of Feria, who had engaged in one of the most brilliant campaigns of the Thirty Years' War. Spanish land communications with Flanders were restored, and a Swedish attack upon Austria was frustrated. So said the historian Ore Stradling. With Feria's example already set, the act of delaying his final mission in order to aid the emperor directly was not too great an ask for the cardinal infant. With Archduke Ferdinand, that is, Emperor Ferdinand's son, commanding a force in Silesia, and the cardinal infant Ferdinand moving up from Italy, the emperor's son was forced to choose in the midsummer of 1634 where he would go next. Would he rendezvous with his Spanish cousin, or would he stay in Silesia to protect it and Bohemia from the Saxons? In the event, Archduke Ferdinand decided to surprise the Saxons and abandon the Habsburg hereditary lands in favour of combining his army with that of the Cardinal Infant to create an Austro-Spanish army at a town called Nordlingen. On his way to the fortuitous rendezvous, the Archduke outmaneuvered the Saxons altogether, capturing Donauwörth and Regensburg, thereby restoring contact between Bavaria and the Emperor. These successes placed a great deal of pressure on Bernard of Saxe-Weimar to act, so once it was made known that Nordlingen was the latest fortified town with a Swedish garrison to come under siege, Bernhard made for it, followed by Gustav Horn, the Swedish commander. By the 2nd of September, 1634, the Archduke's force of 18,000 men had begun their siege of the walled town, a wall which remains fully intact to this day, by the way, and they were joined by the Cardinal Infant's force of 15,000. These 33,000 men dwarfed Bernhard and Horn's approaching army of 25,000 men, but Bernhard's information about this disparity was patchy, and in any event, he felt compelled to attack and dislodge the army of the two Ferdinands, as a victory was desperately needed. While they had busied themselves with a siege of Nordlingen, the two Ferdinands had also found the time to establish a fortified camp nearby. From this fortified camp, they would defend against the tired and demoralised combined force of Protestant Germans and Swedes. The scales were determinedly tipping in favour of the Habsburgs, 
but this did not deter Bernhard, who banked on the inexperience of the two Ferdinands counting in his favour. On the morning of the 6th of September 1634, Bernhard and Horn attacked, initiating one of the very few pitched battles in this phase of the war. Even with their advantages, the victory was not easily or cheaply bought by the Habsburgs. For seven hours, reportedly after withstanding 15 charges, the Habsburg army held out against the kind of murderous firepower and tactics which had by now become a staple of the war. Disciplined, hardy and tenacious, though the Swedes and Germans certainly were, the advantages enjoyed by the imperialist army were simply too great, and the defeat turned quickly into a rout when Spanish cavalry became entangled in Bernhard's baggage train. Imperial cavalry did not have to be told to capitalise twice. Here at last was the opportunity to break Sweden's strategic position as much as its reputation, and they did not flinch. By the end of the Battle of Nordlingen, the cream of Sweden's pool of troops had been liquidated, along with thousands of her German allies. The tally is reported to stand at 12,000 killed or wounded and 4,000 prisoners. But what is not disputed is that Gustav Horn was taken prisoner, adding to the disaster. By the end of the day, the stunned and demoralised Swedish garrison at Nordlingen had handed over the town to the Imperials. It was a shattering defeat, one more crushing than any since the war had begun. Only the loss of White Mountain in November 1620 had the same immediate impact for the anti-imperialist cause. Even better for Habsburg propagandists, the triumph had been won not by a generalissimo or second-rate Catholic League, but by two leading figures of their respective dynasties. The triumph of the two Ferdinands certainly had a nice ring to it, but the battle continued to ring in the ears of Bernhard all the way to Alsace, where he reached by retreating over the Rhine, leaving Sweden's allies south of the River Mine utterly exposed and alone. Pitched battles of the kind of Nordlingen were statistically rare in the Thirty Years' War, but what a transformative result they had on the situation in Germany. In the space of a day, all the efforts of Gustavus Adolphus, from the military triumphs to the political penetration of his politics, had been undone. Sweden, save for its remnants in Alsace under Bernhard, and a force in headlong retreat to Pomerania under Johann Banner, now faced a strategic situation very similar to that faced by Gustavus in summer 1630, when he had first made landfall in Germany. We are told that the Battle of Nordlingen caused only the second sleepless night in the life of Axel Oxenstierna, the Swedish Chancellor. Oxenstierna's first sleepless night had followed the death of Gustavus two years before. With the disintegration of her army in South Germany, it could be expected that any allies in that region would be lost to Sweden, and furthermore, any individuals on the fence would follow. Oxenstierna now rightly began to fear that the previously reluctant electors in Saxony and Brandenburg would be among those to jump ship. I will struggle no longer, but drift where the tide will take me wrote the Chancellor to Johann Banner in Pomerania, adding, We are hated, envied, harassed. Indeed, by the time these words had been put to paper in November 1634, John George of Saxony was already engaging in preliminary negotiations with the Emperor. Nordlingen, it seemed, had given him the push he needed to abandon the Swedes. But more importantly, it affected a change in the policy of the Emperor towards his rebellious vassals, and the final religious settlement. The Habsburg reaction to the Battle of Nordlingen was equally momentous. News of the victory was greeted with jubilation, and in high spirits, each Ferdinand proclaimed his fondness for the other. 
a new era of Habsburg cooperation seemed at hand, and who better to make such cooperation official than Count Onate, the same figure who had negotiated a partition of the Habsburg lands in 1619. Onate arrived in Vienna shortly after Nordlingen and negotiated what historians believe to have been an offensive alliance directed against all enemies of the dynasty, including France. By the following spring, Olivares would write to Vienna as if confirming this arrangement. We are still ignorant of the finer points of the German situation, whilst Your Majesty finds himself preparing at great expense to comply with the requirements of the alliance, in which it is expressly laid down in not so many words, that war will be declared against France. But this war would not be waged by the two Ferdinands. In fact, these two successful commanders would actually never stand side by side in battle again. The Cardinal Infant resumed his old mission of travelling to Brussels, leaving Germany in the rearview mirror, though not without some reservations. He would continue to fight the Dutch in the region until his death in 1641, and he represented in many respects the last gasp of effective Spanish administration in that theatre. The consequences of Nordlingen were felt not only in Sweden and Vienna, but also in France. Richelieu, essentially, was moved to accelerate his plans for the open break with the Habsburgs, and to preserve, in the meantime, whatever could be salvaged from the wrecked remnants of Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar's army. These developments are examined by the historian Martin Hume, who wrote... The Cardinal Infant passed on his way triumphant to his new governorship, crowned by the laurels of victory and the plaudits of his countrymen, but his active intervention in the war with the Spanish government troops changed the aspect of the war. The Swedes were no longer the leaders of a federation of Protestants against a federation of Catholics. It was clear to Richelieu that unless, with the whole force of France, he threw himself into the fray against the House of Austria, not only Protestantism in Germany would suffer, for that indeed he cared nothing, but the vital interest of France. And so it happened that when the Cardinal Infant was entering Brussels in pompous triumph, Richelieu had already heavily subsidised the Dutch for an active renewal of their war against him, and within a few months, early in 1635, Spain herself was in the grip of a great national struggle with France, a struggle which extended as time went on from her Flanders dominions to her Italian possessions and from the French Comte to the sacred soil of Spain itself. Thus, the Battle of Nordlingen was far more than the imperial answer to the Battle of Breitenfeld. It was also a loud, dramatic declaration to the effect that the Swedish part of the war had come to an end. Moved to offset the threat to the Dutch by the invigorated Cardinal Infant, and to defend its interests in Germany, which the reeling Swedes could no longer protect, Cardinal Richelieu and his king embarked solemnly upon a course which was to transform the conflict and effectively create the Thirty Years' War. We're going to leave it there this week, history friends. Thanks so much for listening to this show and for supporting it. I really appreciate you, and I'll be seeing you all, well, sooner than you think. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.